As soon as you guys open there, Ephesians 5. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have uh, ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. Ephesians 5. Um, before we jump in, let me pray, and then we will begin to uh, take a look at this. So, God, right now we ask that you would help us, speak to us, open, God, our minds, our hearts, our thoughts, our ears, God, to be able to hear what you have to speak to us. God, anything that would be hindering us from being able to really truly hear, uh, it's easy for us just to hear content, to hear information, but God, for us to truly hear uh, to where it brings transformation and change to where it's really actually received, God, we need to make certain that there are not things that are going to be blocking or hindering or stealing away your seed from our hearts. So help us, God, we pray, to be focused, to hear, to learn, to grow. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we've been looking at over the last several weeks in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 is Paul introduces to us kind of a new phrase, a new um, idiom that is kind of new to the book of Ephesians, though it's not new to the New Testament. It was the metaphor of light and darkness. And what Paul basically said is that to the church there in Ephesus, he says, you guys are no longer in light, are no longer in darkness, but are in light now. That light has uh, permeated and penetrated your lives, and it's gotten rid of or removed the darkness that you were once a part of and once was that you were steeped in. So the picture is, is that, the church, they're in Ephesus, and then obviously you and I or anyone here this morning that is walking with Jesus, knows Jesus, prayed the sinner's prayer, has a relationship with Jesus, calls yourself a Christian, however you want to describe that experience that you have gone through to become a follower of Christ, a disciple, um, that Paul would say that you are no longer in darkness, but you are in light, that there was once darkness that would define our lives, and that darkness was so deep and so impervious and so in uh, pregnant. Uh, impenetrable, that we on our own had no way of overcoming it. We are powerless uh, with regard to our own lives and overcoming it. Um, Typically, what we would do is we would just simply shuffle one form of darkness for another form of darkness. And so another way to think of it is oftentimes what we do is we shuffle idols for another idol, but we are ultimately powerless to remove our hearts from worshiping false gods, or to remove ourselves from the darkness. What we needed was to be rescued from the darkness. What we needed was to be removed from the darkness, picked up from the darkness, and put into light. That's what Paul is saying that Jesus did for you. Uh, So deep was that darkness that God needed to be the one to rescue you from that. So what Paul then said, now that you walk or are brought out of darkness into light, Paul says, walk in light, Because that's where God is. God is light. God walks in light. Everything that God does is light. And again, light is sort of a metaphor for uh, moral purity and love and kindness and all of these things that are healthy and good uh, that lead to life and lead to flourishing. Darkness is sort of uh, the metaphor for everything that is dead and wounding and hurtful and languishing and all of these things. What Paul is saying is that God has done something in your life to bring you into a place where now you can become more in consistency uh, with your life to that which God has created you to be, uh, to flourish, to be light-giving, light-producing, or life-producing. This is how God designed us to be. But what happens is we choose our own paths oftentimes, and the paths that we choose lead to death and darkness. The paths that we are bound by lead to death and darkness. The decisions that we make oftentimes lead to death and darkness. So if you think about it this way, in your life, every single one of us will make decisions uh, today. Some of those decisions may not have any type of uh, you know, real weightiness in terms of, except for you know, getting through today, might have to do with you know, what am I going to eat for dinner, or what am I going to have for lunch, or should I take a nap today, or should I not take a nap today? I'm definitely taking a nap today, I know that for sure, but um, I've already decided that. But the point of the matter is, is most of the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis will not make massive dis- uh, changes to our life. But every once in a while, we are faced with decisions as to, what should I do in this circumstance? And the way we answer that, uh, those questions oftentimes either lead to uh, more darkness or greater light, uh, more languishing or more flourishing. And this is what Paul is saying. Make choices in your lives now that you're free from the darkness to walk in light. And Paul says that as you walk in light, you will by nature, just by the very virtue of you walking in light, you will expose the deeds of darkness. And that's what Paul says. And so what we saw is we kind of finished on a little section last week uh, where Paul says in verse 14, he says, 
For anything that uh, becomes visible in the light uh, is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. I love that because as we kind of were looking at this last week, that, that's basically, um, it sounds like Paul's referring to some sort of ancient psalm because it says, you know, as it says. So it's like, you know, where does it say that, Paul? And uh, scholars have like s- literally scoured, not, uh, searched through the Old Testament. It's not in the Old Testament. So it's kind of led a lot to believe that maybe it was like a, an early first century uh, song that was written within the church. And it was something that maybe they sung on a Sunday morning or as they gathered together as a church to sing. And Paul's like, you know, as it says, you know, and it's, he's referring to that. But then Paul then goes on to say, in verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk. And the word then, we saw, is basically a connector. It connects what Paul had just gotten finished saying to now what he's about to say. And so the then connects to um, exposing darkness, walking in light, and thus exposing darkness. And so what Paul is then going to follow and point out, how do we expose darkness? And one of the things we pointed out was that exposure, the word expose, um, can basically mean to deprive from shelter or protection, uh, to cause something to become visible or open to view. But another way to understand that particular word, expose, could also mean to convince or to convince somebody of something. And if you think about the word usage, it's very similar. So if you were going to expose some sort of deed or misdeed that somebody was doing, really the whole point of exposing it to them is not just to shame them, right? If you're the type of person that likes to point out other people's misdeeds just to shame them, shame on you. That's not good. That's not the point of this. It's not to bring shame to other people. It's ultimately to convince them. Because by convincing someone of misdeeds or deeds that lead to languishing or more darkness or greater death, you want to convince them that those misdeeds are not life-giving. And so therefore, there's a better way. The idea of convincing them is not to just shame them or bring condemnation upon them, but ultimately to show them, to convince them that there's a better way to live life that's consistent with God. That's consistent with the nature of God, consistent with the character of God. And this is the whole point. This is the whole idea that Paul is basically saying. So exposure of evil is not an end in and of itself. It's merely the means to an end, which is ultimately to lead people to a greater path of life in Christ. Does that make sense, guys? Following up? The reason why I think it's important to state that is because there is a tendency, especially in our information age, where anybody can start a blog and anybody can start writing stuff, that there's a tendency to just want to use space in this world to bring shame, to bring condemnation, to bring out all sorts of woes and evils of non-Christians as well as Christians. And I would say there is a place for that, for sure. There is definitely a place in using uh, writings and as well as orally speaking, communicating to point out things that are erroneous or wrong. They need to be exposed. But that's not an end. It should never be an end. The end should always lead to a greater path that leads to life and light and flourishing that leads ultimately to Jesus. That's the point. So what Paul is going to say now is that as you walk in the light, you will naturally, by way of your life, you will expose darkness, okay? So what Paul is then going to follow this up with by saying is that this exposure, this convincing of darkness can be done by way of words, i.e. rhetoric, good argumentation, you know, being able to kind of present an argument to somebody, to sit down with them and to say, you know, here's, you know, all this information I gathered. Here's why this path that you're on is wrong. Here's why you should stop doing what you're doing because X, Y, and Z could happen. And then it's basically trying to convince them. But another way is not just simply through words or rhetoric or argument, but also ultimately through actions, lifestyle, what Paul says, walk. Let your walk, your lifestyle, your conduct, be in such a way so that as you walk, live, follow Jesus, you will actually help to convince others around you, which is the same word as expose, convince others around you that are locked in, stuck in darkness, that there's a better path, that there is another way to find life. And that the path and the paths that oftentimes people in this world, paths that all of us at some point we were on, 
um, until we are rescued, and sometimes even as we've been rescued, or if you're a Christian, we still oftentimes, you know that we can make choices to go down paths that are dark, that are broken. That's why Christians sometimes can do things that are just as bad as non-Christians, and so it shouldn't shock you. Sometimes it's easy for us as Christians to be like, can't believe Christians do that. Why is that shocking to you? It shouldn't be shocking to you. Christians do dumb things. I mean, the, the thing is, is that we, we've been, and the reason why it should be kind of shocking is because we've been given life and light. The only reason why it really should shock you is not because it's like, how dare a Christian do that? I thought they were perfect. No, they're not perfect. But the, the reality is that we've been, we've been given life. It's like I said a couple weeks ago, we showed a little video clip of a gal that was uh, prostituted who lived in San Francisco. Be like her. That was her darkness. Her darkness was prostitution. Her darkness was being physically and sexually and emotionally abused. Uh, her darkness was all of that. And yet Jesus rescued her from that. He saved her from that. Uh, it would be very silly and make no sense at all for her to say, you know, I'm going to go date my former uh, pimp. It wouldn't make any sense at all. Or for her to go hang out with him, go spend time with him, or to go be around that scene again, because that would be her entering into that darkness, potentially being swallowed up by that darkness again. It wouldn't make any sense at all. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that God calls his people to walk in a new path or a new pattern of lifestyle. This is what he means by conduct. So let me show you a quick little um, diagram that I did. Um, they'll be able to find it and throw it up there. It's actually not in order, so just in case you're checking. Um, so basically what I did is I kind of was looking at this and this series of uh, scriptures that follow. We're not going to get through all this today, but we will take the next several weeks and really kind of slow down the pace and look at these things because what Paul, I think, is really kind of pointing out sort of this correlation between walking in light and what it looks like. So as we walk in light, walking in light looks like, and whatever it looks like is going to lay out from verse 15 all the way down to verse 20. But then as we walk in light simultaneously, darkness will be exposed. The idea, the hope is, is that darkness will be exposed and there's a correlating type of a darkness. And even though the, cor- the darkness is not necessarily explicitly stated in the text, um, everything that walking the light is. And so therefore, by way of implication, the darkness is sort of the opposite. So for example, what we looked at last week is we saw in verse 15, is that walking in the light looks like self-inspection. That's why Paul says, uh, therefore, um, he says, walk circumspectly. We looked at that last week, spent a little bit of time looking at that and saying that a Christian, someone who's free, who's been washed, who's been taken out of the darkness, brought into light, they're actually free to look at their lives, to examine themselves uh, in a very new light that's independent of where their identity is found. In other words, for example, if you're the type of person that is very defensive whenever you're corrected. If people have to walk around on eggshells around you because they're never really certain as to whether or not you're going to blow up, you're going to explode, you're going to get angry, you're going to get frustrated. If you're the type of person that oftentimes may be gossipy or whatever. That it's okay. If you're a Christian, then you should have the freedom to be able to ask people around you, the closest to you, whether it be your spouse or a roommate or a family member, someone that you care, ask them. Am I known for this? Am I the type of person that people actually have to walk around in eggshells around me? Because a free person can look at that and say, if that's me, then I don't want to be that. Because that was never Jesus. People didn't walk around in eggshells around Jesus. People weren't afraid in a sense. Jesus wasn't just losing his temper, going off and flying off the handle and getting angry and upset with people. Jesus was not that at all. So again, for example, it allows us, it frees us to inspect ourselves with total honesty. Does that make sense? But let me put it this way. Let me, let me flip this around. The, ex, the opposite of this, or what this exposes, it exposes the darkness of self-deception. I'd be willing to bet that the majority of us have at some point in our life, maybe even right now, you are, this is by definition your life, you are steeped, locked in, stuck, maybe even the word mastered by self-deception. You actually think you're okay. You actually think everything about your life and everything about your relationships is okay. And you don't welcome other people to invest, to speak, to show honesty, to speak into your life, to show you. Because you're afraid that if they tell you, no, you're actually really rude. It will crumble your life. That bit of truth will shock you and it will totally stun your life to the point where you will be broken. 
and you will lose everything, and you don't want to lose everything because you're desperately afraid of finding the truth out, so we oftentimes deceive ourselves and just keep living in the darkness. But those that are in the light, because their identity has shifted from who they are, the types of people that like them, to knowing that Jesus likes them. He doesn't just like them, he loves you. And that frees you, it actually liberates you so that those bad habits, those bad attitudes, those bad actions in your life that are actually destructive, not only to yourself, but also to every other relationship that you're involved with, you can actually look at those objectively, maybe for the first time in your life, and say, yep, that's poisonous, that's toxic, and that needs to change. Jesus, please change me. Yes, that's offended certain people, and that person, and my spouse, and I can go to those people and say, please Forgive me. Do you, do you know how freeing that is? That is, a, that is a far more freeing way of living than self-deception. Acting as if everything's okay. So, again, you get the idea. So walking in the light looks like something, and then it ultimately exposes some sort of counterpart to that. So we looked at the first two last week. We're going to jump on down to the third one. So if you guys are kind of keeping track, think of it this way. This is maybe the third one in that list. Or if you want to think of it this way, this is kind of part two of what we looked at last week. So I'm not exactly certain how long we're going to be spending in this over the next couple of weeks, but I, I just really feel like we're to take some time to think through these things again because it correlates. Paul is saying is that if you are free from the darkness, you are free to walk in the light. Here's what walking in the light looks like. Here's the type of darkness that exposes. So I think it's important for us to just pause, slow a little bit, and to allow these uh, passages to begin to really dig deep and to inform our understanding of not only who we are, but who God is and how God calls us to live within community amongst others. Sound good? It's okay to say, like, amen, pastor, or like, get a little bit, like, charismatic. It's all good. It's all good. So, a little amen, or hallelujah, or it's all, you guys can do that every once in a while. I'm just, I'm just saying. So, every once in a while, you guys want to do that? It's totally fine with me. Okay, so what we're going to do is, the third one, is we'll take a look at Walking in the light looks like what verse 16 lays out. Walking in the light looks like stewardship of our lives, and ultimately that exposes the darkness of squandering what we've been given. So it looks like stewarding our lives simultaneously. When we steward our lives, it will ultimately expose the darkness of squandering what we've been given. Okay, so that's basically taken from verse uh, 16, where Paul says this, Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. Now, depending upon what translation you have, um, it may vary from what I just read. And really, the word that it may vary on is a particular word that uh, may be translated in some of your Bibles as opportunity. Anybody have that translation that says opportunity? One person, two people, a couple people. Okay, opportunity. Um, some of your Bibles might say make the most of your time. Like I said, mine says making the best usage of your time. The word time is the exact same that's translated as opportunity. Um, it's actually the Greek word uh, that's called um, kairos, and that is actually distinct from another word that oftentimes gets translated as time, which is chronos. Okay? So think of chronos from the English word. We get the word chronology. So think of time in a linear fashion where you know, here this is you know, when uh, you turn a certain you know, age, and this is when, you know, so we, we put all these dates on this linear scale, and we determine where we're at basically on that type of a scale. That's not the word that is actually used here. The word that's basically used here is kairos, and what that means is basically sort of an epoch or an era, and the idea is, is that you've been given time, you've been given an opportunity, given a chance, why some of the translations are actually opportunity. The idea of make the most, make the best of not just simply the time, but the opportunity, the season, the life, the, all that you've been given. So if you want to think of it this way, every single one of us here, you all have pulses, you all have uh, brain movement that's going on. It means that you are alive. You did not do that to yourself. The fact that you have the ability to breathe right now, breathe in a breath of air, you have that freedom given to you right now it was a gift from God. And 
Not only that, but it complements with oxygen that's in there. Because if we're in an environment that has no oxygen, you can be breathing, inhaling all you want, but you will die because there is nothing that can actually feed life into your body. So everything that we have right now is actually a gift from God. God has given you life. God has given you breath. God has given you and placed you every, given everything to you in this life right now. That's sometimes hard for us to understand because sometimes some of the things that we have are challenging and hard. Uh, and we wonder, how are we going to get through this? And God basically says, I will help you get through those things. But what typically takes place in our lives is the darkness that we're oftentimes overcome by is that we actually think that this life is owed to me. It's not a gift from God. It's something that I deserve, and I will make the best usage of my time the way that I see fit. I mean, the motto of this generation is YOLO. Right? It's YOLO. It's like you only live once. Some of you are like, what's YOLO? You only live once. And that's sort of the motto of this generation. You only live once. And what that means is that basically it puts you at the center of your life. And it says, this life is about me. It's about my excitement. It's about my amusement. It's about everything that I can get for myself, maybe even at the expense of other people right here, right now, because I'm going to die at some point and I only live once. Amen. So the point of the matter is, is that living that lifestyle at some point has an expiration date that will expire on you. It will collapse in on you. And at some point, those people that you brought into that will collapse on them and crush them. So the point with regard to that concept is that it's very self-serving. And at the end of the day, those who live with that motto really don't live maximizing their joy. At some point, they find themselves miserable. It's because they see their life as something that revolves around them. Whereas the Christian views their life as a gift from God. God gave you everything you had. God gave you this life. Have you ever wondered why you're here in San Luis Obispo? Right? You're wondering that too. You know, why am I in San Luis Obispo? Why am I in this spot? Why, why am I not um, you know, in Syria or Pakistan? or the Ivory Coast, uh, or Eastern Ukraine right now? Why, why am I here on the Central Coast? Because God has put you here. Why are you alive in this era and not, you know, like 400 years ago? Because God has given it to you. Everything you have is a gift from God. It is a gift from your Heavenly Father who loves you, who is promised to supply every single need for you. You see, what typically happens is we don't believe that. We don't really believe that. We are, by nature, by virtue of that description, actually walking in a path that the Bible describes as darkness. And so if the model that we live by is YOLO, meaning the idea is that I'm in control of my life and I'm the one that kind of regulates what type of pleasure and joy and amusement that I will get, that I'm in control of this. And what that means is that you look on the landscape and you begin to realize that if you're really honest with yourself, even in America, the land of the plenty, we look at this life and to some degree, we are convinced that there's nothing on the horizon but scarcity. We're not sure if we're going to have money tomorrow. We're not going to sure if we're going to have a job tomorrow. We're not going to sure if we're going to have a relationship with somebody tomorrow. We're not absolutely sure we're going to have all these other things and hopes that we're going to get tomorrow. So what we do is today we live and we grab as much as we can. And what that produces is a society of anxious people. We're community of people that are absolutely beside ourselves with anxiety. Children of Israel, for example, when they came out of Egypt, um, they were raised, they were trained, if you would, discipled, if you would, under Pharaoh. And Pharaoh discipleship was one of harsh reality. It was one of brick making. It was one of working 24 hours a day, perhaps, if you would, maybe even at least 18 hours from sunup to sundown, however long that was at that particular season of time. It was one that was seven days a week, sun up to sundown, never a vacation, never a break. They knew nothing but anxiety. God's freedom from that brings them to the wilderness. He says, here's the way things are going to work now. 
under my administration, not Pharaoh's, I'm not Pharaoh, under my administration, I'm going to give you food. Every day, I will give you food at my hand. It's called manna. Every day, go out in the morning and look for the food, and I will give you the food. God says, one thing you need to know is that don't, don't gather excess food. Don't build big storehouses and stuff your manna in there, because if you do, what you need to know about manna is that manna uh, is, is, it will ultimately breed worms, and it will become, uh, you know, rancid in the morning, so... But, but if you do that, if you live, if you train your life to live based upon scarcity and anxiety, then you will hoard. But if you learn to live from the hand of Yahweh, you will be able to be at peace because you will know that there is more than enough bread to go around because there will be bread from the hand of God every single day because he said so. And the reality is that we oftentimes don't believe that. We think that we're the ones responsible for what we have. And what we will get. And so as a result of that, our lives become all about gathering, all about anxiety, all about accumulation. And we squander our lives. People that live with anxious accumulation never have anything to give. Never. It's shocking. I mean, I've been to El Salvador, I don't know, seven, eight times. Um, I love the people in El Salvador. I'd go move there if I could. I love El Salvador. I love the people down there. Um, they're some of the most unbelievably generous people I've ever met. They have nothing. It's, it's actually kind of funny because on the one hand, they have nothing, except you go to anybody's house and they have these big screen televisions and everybody has a smartphone. It's shocking to me. And they live like in these like little cinder block houses and they're tiny. I mean, like they can, the whole house can fit on stage and there's literally like, I don't know, 10, you know, you got grandma living in the back and uncle there and, you know, everyone just kind of hangs around and sits, you know, it's all dirt and everything, dogs, they've got like six dogs, they're all stray and they're just owned by the entire neighborhood. And they're so generous, they're like giving you pupusas and making things for you and so generous with everything they have. They have nothing and yet they are the most generous people because people controlled, mastered by anxious accumulation, have nothing to give because all they are preoccupied with is storing, gathering, accumulating. Because they've forgotten a very important principle. Your life is a gift to you from God to be stewarded. There's a difference between stewardship and ownership. A steward is one that sees what they have as to be managed, to be taken care of. An owner basically says, I own this. My life is mine, and anything good that's going to happen is going to come through my hands in my life because nobody's going to do anything for me. So I've got to work hard. I've got to work feverishly to make things become productive in my life. It's all dependent upon me. And what happens at the end of the day, we've got nothing to give. And we end up squandering our lives. But a steward basically says, if God is God, if God has given me this life, then that means that it's intended for something. It's to be guided by God. It's to be given back to God. And as a result of that, there will be rich blessing to go beyond what I have right now. There will be more to give away. And this is the type of life that God says. Walking in light is one that basically says, I don't want re- to redeem my time. I want to take good stewardship of my life and use it in a way that brings God honor and glory. So think of it this way. As we kind of walk through this world, as we go through this world, um, you can think of a Christian navigating this world in one of three ways, all right? First way is, and I'll come back to them real quickly, is uh, one, as a tourist. Second is as an immigrant. Third is as an ambassador. First, as a tourist. A tourist is somebody that's sort of traveling through. A tourist has no emotional connection uh, to anything, the surroundings. A tourist oftentimes can be uh, identified as you know, loud, obnoxious people. They just you know, abuse things. They take advantage of things. If you've ever rented a car, you know I'm talking about? You're just like, uh, you, know, you know, maybe it's just me actually you know, taking advantage of the vehicle and doing donuts and not treating it as very well as if it were your own because you know you're going to be giving it back at some point. Or if you go to a hotel room, you know, there's, you're, you're more prone to treat it with disrespect 
than if it were your own because you're just a tourist. You're just passing through. Sometimes people treat the church like that. They're just like, it's just not my church, so why worry about it? And the point of the matter is, is that sometimes we treat the world like that in the tourist mentality. Second of which is an immigrant mentality. An immigrant basically says, I'm going to move into a new region, a new area, and I will adapt myself to the culture in every way, shape, and form. I will learn the language. I will learn the nuances. I will learn the habits. I will do everything that is consistent with the culture so that I can be fully integrated and fully accepted within that. And so the one idea is Christians can basically view the world as just this place they're passing through and they can trash it and take advantage of it and abuse it, not really care about it, not really think about it, not really steward it well. The opposite extreme is to basically just say, I'll become exactly part of it. I will make my home here. I will hunker down and adapt everything as, and integrate everything in this culture as to become a part of my life. But the third way is to basically see yourself as an ambassador. That's what Paul basically says of himself in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors. And the ambassador is basically one who is actually resident or residing in a particular country. However, their citizenship is in another country. In some ways, they're actually there in that country representing another country. And this is what Paul says. That Paul is saying that actually our citizenship is in heaven. And for example, Jesus, when Jesus was before Pilate, Pilate comes to Jesus and says, you know, are you a king? Jesus says, I am a king. He says, like, uh, begins elaborating. He says, my kingdom, however, is not of this world. And some have actually taken the idea that when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, to mean that Jesus is saying that my kingdom actually is like in another planet. And one of these days, God will take and swipe everybody off planet Earth and send them out there and then do away with planet Earth and we'll be gone and there'll be no restoration of this thing. It will just be completely scorched and destroyed. But the point of the matter is, is actually that is an incorrect understanding of it, that God actually loves planet Earth God has a plan for the restoration of planet Earth. But when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, one scholar rightly, I think, identified that even though Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he did say, go on to say, in terms of this scholar saying, that my kingdom is for this world. And I think if you think about that, it's absolutely true. What is Jesus' kingdom marked by? Love, forgiveness, kindness, Aren't those, those elusive traits that you and I are always looking for? Seldomly fine. Aren't those the things that when we find them, we treasure them? Aren't those things the ones that we look at, if we find it, like in some person, we, we look at that person, we're like, I want to be like that person. Why is that? Because those are the traits that are resident in God. Those are the traits that are missing, that are absent from planet Earth, because in their place, is darkness. In their place is unforgiveness. In their place, instead of forgiveness, there's unforgiveness. Instead of love, there's fear and hate. Instead of kindness, there's unkind people doing unkind things. Instead of uh, wholeness and healing, there's a bunch of hurt people constantly uh, stirring up the pot and hurting more people. And our greatest longing is what Jesus said. He says, pray that God's kingdom will come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our longing. That's our prayer. So if you think of it this way, walking in light is going to look like stewarding your lives. Exposing darkness is going to look like getting rid of that which we oftentimes do in terms of squandering our lives. So stewardship of our lives is an important element of recognizing that God has given you a life to live. How will you live it? The second thing that Paul is going to say that walking the light is going to look like, is it says, verse 17, it looks like being in agreement with the will and the mind of God. It looks like being in agreement with the will and the mind of God, and then it exposes the darkness of self-will. So let me unpack that. In verse 17, he says this, do not be foolish, I'll come back to that in a second, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The word understand in the Greek basically is a word that um, can mean um, to be in agreement with. It's not just a cognitive type of response, like, oh, yeah, shake your head at it and be like, okay, I get it. It's a way of basically inviting, saying, God, I want your mind, your heart, your will, your aim, your goals to be mine. It's a merging, it's a fusing of your heart with the heart of God, saying, God, who you are, what you are, what you're about, what you care about, I want that to be part of who I am. Does that make sense? That's what, that's what Paul says. He says, walking in the light is really about being in agreement with the will and the heart and the mind of God. 
See, the problem is we walk in darkness. What that means is that we don't walk in agreement with God. What this presupposes, actually, is that there is an order to the way things are meant to be in this world. So it's kind of a funny thing. So let's say, for example, you're an inventor, all right? You create things. Some of you guys I know kind of are entrepreneurial, so you like to create things, and you like to be creative and uh, develop things. We have an incredibly um, uh, very artistic church. There's a lot of people. A lot of you guys are graphic designers and musicians and photographers and videographers. There's a lot of people here that, 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 that dabble with that and that are uh, steeped into that type of world. And the point of the matter is, is that we love creativity really as a church. It's something we celebrate. But see, here's the thing, is that when you create something, your, your will is a part of that. Your heart, your desire, you put your life into that thing. So in other words, if someone comes up to something that you created, or let's say you made a song, you wrote a song, and you put it in a particular key, and someone comes and you're like, you know what, I don't like that key, I think I'm going to put it in this key, and they rather you know, take uh, you know, uh, a major chord and they turn it into a minor chord. Now it's like all dark and deep. Uh, it's, it's all indie, it's like not what you intended for it. And you're like, that sounds actually horrible. Like, that's, that's, that's not how I created it. Like, I created that song so it would bring joy, and you turned it into something that makes it sound horrible. It, someone once described sin as vandalism upon God's shalom. So think of it this way. Going to a, a great piece of art created by a master and sabotaging it. Self-will basically says, I know how to run my life better than the one who created me. And this is in every year of our lives. This, is, this isn't just in the big things that oftentimes church people love to talk about. You know, like sex. This has to do with everything. This has to do with how we even think about relationships. God says, look, relationships function better when there's transparency and you can be open and when you sin against somebody, you say those words, I'm sorry. And when you've been sinned against, you say those words, I forgive you. And then you return to embrace and reconciliation. God says that's how relationships flourish. If you modify that or edit that or change that or shift that according to ways in which you think are going to make you you're happier, you will end up breaking the system down and you will find yourself in places of darkness languishing and hurting. So the idea here is that God calls us to be in agreement with him, to understand his heart, to understand his mind. Sometimes one of the questions that oftentimes I talk to a lot of people about and they're always asking the question is, you know, what's God's will for my life? You guys ever ask that question? You know, oftentimes the question gets very um, specialize and usually in one of several ways and you know usually what we're asking is like you know who am I supposed to marry um, where am I supposed to live what type of job am I supposed to get where am I supposed to go to school and how am I going to pay for it all you know those are typically the questions that we're oftentimes asking like what's God's will for my life and those questions are really important because those are big significant questions and so what happens I think oftentimes we miss really the the main purposes that God's really trying to do and work forth in our lives. And so what I want to do, I want to finish with some ways of trying to help you guys to think about navigating through and understanding what God's will is for your life. What I want to do is I'm going to break this down for you guys in, one, in two ways. First way, you can think about it this way, navigating the will of God, or understanding the will of God in terms of a macro form, the big picture. Um, and, and even though um, if you've ever you know, been around Christianity for any length of time, you know that if you start asking those questions, well, like, I just want to know from God who am I supposed to marry, that the Bible, for example, is probably not going to give you that answer. I might tell you the type of person you're supposed to marry. It's not going to tell you their name, unless their name's like a biblical name or whatever. But the point of the matter is you're not going to find a scripture that says, thou shalt marry so-and-so, or thou shalt move to this particular city. Um, you're, you're probably not going to. So if you're looking through the Bible trying to find answers like that, you will be totally let down. So what I want to try to do is I want to help to... Uh, give you um, some things to think about, or a framework, if you would, to help you think about how to navigate and how to explore and understand God's will. We'll go through these pretty quickly. So the first uh, thing that I really want to kind of unpack in terms of understanding, you know, God's heart, God's mind, God's will, how God reveals himself. So first of all, the Bible. The Bible informs to us. It speaks to us. It doesn't, like I said, give us every single answer that we need. Like, the Bible did not tell me that I was supposed to marry, uh, you know, Sherry as my wife. Like, it didn't tell me that. But it did tell me 
look for a type of girl that loves Jesus and is, you know, it, it inform me, it really give me a picture of the type of girl and that working in conjunction with my desires and what I saw as, you know, beautiful and whatnot. It, it helped lead me to someone uh, like my wife and ultimately my, my wife. So the point of the matter is, is the Bible informs us. It gives us a picture of who God is and what God is like and what God's plan is. So we look to the Bible and the Bible will ultimately give us a big picture goal in aim in terms of what is on the mind of God or what God's agenda is, what God is up to in this world. So the Bible ultimately, first of all, uh, is a key place. Now, one other thing I would say about this, all four of these things are kind of interconnected. So in other words, if you just simply look at the Bible independent of all these other things, um, you're probably not going to, you're going to have a hard time discerning or understanding what God's plan is. If you pull any one of them out and sort of isolate it, uh, you will find yourself perhaps entering into some unknown territory that might even lead you to dark places. Second of which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God says, uh, as Paul is going to point out in just a moment, he's going to say, uh, and be filled with the Holy Spirit, don't be drunk with wine. The point that Paul is going to be making, we'll look at this more in a couple of weeks, um, but the idea is be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's presence living within you, guiding you. The book of John, First uh, John, basically describes we have God's Holy Spirit living within us that informs us, teaches us all things. So the Holy Spirit sometimes can inform us and teach us by promptings, things that are laid upon our heart that can come times, sometimes even through like things like visions or dreams or uh, just promptings that we might have or things that we think about. But again, all of those need to actually be tra- uh, cross-referenced with the Scripture. So for example, if someone comes to you and says, I feel like God's supposed to lead me to this particular path because I had a vision or I had a dream, but if that vision or dream is actually inconsistent with Scripture, then you're pretty safe to assume that's probably not God giving that. So script, uh, things like dreams or visions or words of wisdom or words of knowledge should be in line to some degree, or at least should not be contradictory to what is already written in the Scripture. Again, it's another way in which God informs. A perfect example of this was in the book of Acts. I think it's around Acts chapter 13. It says that um, Paul and another guy by the name of Barnabas, they were with a handful of other church uh, folk that were in that particular city. They were in a prayer meeting, and as they were praying, it says, the Holy Spirit then said, separated me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work of the ministry. It was really actually the beginning of this missionary endeavor that involved both Paul and this other guy by the name of Barnabas. It's one of those like um, mystery passages to me, because you know I have all sorts of questions from that, like how did the Holy Spirit actually speak? What did he do? Was it a verbal, audible type of voice? Was it through the mouth of somebody else that everyone is like, that's definitely the Holy Spirit? Was it in a prompting that was on everybody's heart that everybody was just sort of in unity with it? Like someone spoke and they're like all in agreement, like, yes, that bears witness with me and me and me. And yes, Paul, I think you should be going on a missionary trip and taking Barnabas with you. The point of the matter is the Holy Spirit was the one that helped lead, form, forge, guide uh, the will of God to come to fruition. Third thing is community or the church. Think about it this way. When Paul, for example, wrote this particular passage, he was writing this to a church. It wasn't to individuals. So it's important for, you to, for all of us to understand. I mean, we live in a world where we want so desperately to approach things independently from anybody else. So we want to read the scripture on our own. We want, and all of this is good. I mean, yes, read your Bible on your own, definitely. Uh, develop patterns and habits within your life where you study the scripture, but recognize you should never ultimately be alone. You should be part of a community. It's one of the reasons why we have things here in this church called community groups, where they're designed for you to do life together, to study the scripture together, to understand what God is like with other believers that are pursuing Jesus together. So you wrestle with scriptures there. You talk about passages. You talk about life circumstances and choices and decisions and troubles and hardships. People gather around you and pray for you and lift you up and help you so that you can do exactly what Paul says, walk in the light, which is ultimately going to look like you walking in agreement with God, which means that when you're faced and confronted with tough decisions, you're with the community together. They're praying for you. You're working forth with God's heart and mind being unpacked within your life. Does that make sense? So if you, for example, just remove community and you remove the, uh, the, the scripture and the Holy Spirit from community and all you have is just the community around you and they're the ones kind of informing you, telling you how you should be living your life in front of God, um, that's basically the type of stuff that cults are made out of, right? 
I mean, it's like the, the community, oftentimes led by a charismatic leader, he's the one who's telling you you should marry. He's the one who's telling you I should live your life. He's not referring to the scripture. He's probably even discouraging people to get into the scripture because the scripture is going to prove uh, that he's a false prophet. The point of the matter is, is that all these things kind of work together. And finally, a renewed heart. That God, if you're a Christian, God's given you wisdom. It's important to note that. I mean, all of us have varying degrees of wisdom because all of us are at various places in our walk with Jesus. Some of you have only been Christians for just, you know, weeks maybe. Some of you have been Christians for a long time. But even some of you have been Christians for a very long time may not be very wise. I've met many Christians that are very knowledgeable in the Bible, but they're not very wise in the Bible. They know a lot of Scripture, but their wisdom in living these things out, it's one of the reasons why Paul says, uh, don't be unwise, but know the mind of God. So God does give all of us as people, meaning we have the capacity to rationalize and to think. It's one of the reasons why you don't need to wake up in the morning and be like, okay, what kind of toothpaste does God want me to use this morning? It's just like silly. And honestly, I've met Christians before that are so OCD over this type of stuff. It's crazy. I remember talking to a guy years ago, and I probably should be telling you this, but the point of the matter is, like, he, he called me up one day, and he was like, I'm not sure how fast I should be driving on the freeway. I'm driving 45 right now because I feel like God told me to drive 45. He ends up getting pulled over. Cops like, why are you driving so slow? He's like, because the Lord told me to. He's like, I'm like, bro, look, to be really honest with you, God did not tell you to drive that. That's, that's just, that's, that's crazy. I mean, he's like, I just want so much to be walking in the will of God and doing what God tells me to do. Like, that's not how you do it. Like, you know, he's a perfect example of a guy that was completely isolated himself, not involved in any form of community. He's trying to figure out the will in the mind of God himself. And he's like destroying himself via OCD, trying to discern this. And ultimately, it was misled, misguided. So, you can look at it these for specific ways, and I'll finish with this couple different questions that you can ask. Last one is this. Um, there's just a couple questions you can ask. This is sort of on the micro level. Is it lawful? And basically, this kind of revolves around two verses. One, 1 Corinthians uh, six twelve. You can look it up on your own. Um, and then Luke chapter 25, verses 27 to 28, when some guy comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment that will actually lead to everlasting life? You know, what will lead to the age-abiding life, Jesus? He wasn't asking, Jesus, when will I, you know, where will I uh, go after I die? He's like, when can, how do I get the age-abiding life that you have in me right now? And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. So a couple questions. One, is it lawful? Is it legal? Is it lawful for you to do something? So um, when trying to discern, is it God's will? Is it lawful? Secondly, is it beneficial? Is it something that could lead to your benefit, your flourishing, or down the road, thinking through it, processing through it, listening to the wisdom of other people, listening to the wisdom of the Bible, is it, could it be something that could ultimately lead to your destruction, your hurt, your pain, your brokenness? Uh, is it beneficial to me? Um, something, there's a lot of things that we basically make decisions based upon convenience. Is it convenient? That's not a good question to ask. I mean, we live in a convenient culture that just wants everything to be at our fingertips. But that's probably, if, if you are living your life trying to discern God's will by asking the question, is it convenient? Um, is perhaps the wrong question to be asking, but is it beneficial? Thirdly, is it enslaving? Is the path that you are envisioning or thinking about or asking about going down, could it ultimately lead to habits or things that can actually end up mastering you or enslaving you? Fourthly, will it help me love God more? Will this path, will this decision, will this direction be something that will help me and fan the fire of my heart towards loving God? Finally, will it help me love others? And the last thing I want to finish with is a quote, and I'm done. Um, Augustine, I'm not even sure if I have it up on here, but Augustine, some of you guys know who Augustine is, great quote, I love this. Sometimes the first part is what gets quoted, but the rest of it is, I think, is really crucial. Augustine says this, love God and do what you please. And oftentimes it just stops right there. That can be sort of dangerous. But he goes on and say, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. I love Augustine's way of like, you want to know how you discern God's will? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and do whatever you want. Some of us are like, that, that's, that's, that seems really scary. Like, but do you hear what it's saying? If you love God, if you're doing things in your heart, the heart of your desire is to please the one whom you love and to love those whom he loves and to love that which he loves, then God will lead you and guide you. and You walk into his will, his plan. That's it. I'm going to have the guys come on up and we're going to finish with some singing, but... 
as they're coming up, I want you to think about this because we can talk and we can finish with all of this and basically say, okay, now, you guys, here's what it looks like to walk in the light. Go walk in the light and stop walking in darkness and be good Christians and stop being bad Christians. And what we've been saying all along is that if we take that approach and what ends up happening is that we will either be completely swallowed up by despair because we look at our lives and we realize maybe we're, we're, we're not doing that good. We realize there are things that we truly are struggling with and having a hard time embracing and actually walking in agreement, especially with regard to God's heart. And we'll feel full of despair. We'll feel like we're not a good Christian. We'll feel like we're on the outskirts. We're on the outside. We're the marginalized ones. Uh, you know, everyone else is singing. They all look happy. I don't even want to sing because I'm not happy. Uh, you can look at your life and just think that I'm not there. These people are different than me. Maybe some of you are feeling like that. You're overwhelmed by despair. Others of you may look at your life and be overwhelmed by arrogance and just think, I am doing all these things. I'm walking with Jesus. I'm a wonderful person living in Christ. And there's an arrogance that can oftentimes overcome you. But the point of the matter is, is what we need is a new motivation, a new heart. What the gospel is, is the gospel is this unbelievable story. It's actually not unbelievable. It is believable. It is a story that God calls us, invites us into to realize that even though you have been at one point in your life or even currently right now consumed by, overwhelmed by darkness, deep darkness, that God has come to do something about that darkness. And the way that he's chosen to do something about that darkness was not by just simply issuing a decree, darkness be gone, or he could have done that. But the way he did that is he came into this world, the son, Jesus, on the cross, the darkest day of all. Darkness, literally it says, covered the face of the land. And in that moment, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in that moment what we see is that the darkness was not just the physical darkness, it was a spiritual darkness. And what Jesus was doing was bringing into himself your darkness, my darkness. He plunged himself into our darkness, those things that have crushed us and ruined us and defiled us and destroyed us. He brought them upon himself so that in exchange for our darkness, he can give us his light and his life. This is the good God that we have. This is the God that invites you to come to him, to cast your cares, your sins, your shame, your sin down at his feet, to ask him to wash you, to cleanse you, to forgive you. This is the God that gives. This is the God that is of abundance. It's abundant love, abundant mercy, abundant kindness, abundant grace to give to you. So why don't we all stand? We'll sing, partake of communion in the back. If you're here this morning, and there are any things that are going on in your life right now, any circumstance that you find yourself crushed by, wounded by, hurt by, we want to minister to you. Look, we finished by singing, not just simply by, as a way of, you know, here's our nice, fancy way of closing the service, but as a way of giving you guys an opportunity to respond to God. So if there's any of you here right now, there are things that are going on in your life, you just need people to pray for you. We want to minister to you. This is a time for you to take those circumstances and scenarios to, to Jesus and let him bring healing to you. So we have people over off on the side by the cross that would love to pray for you. So let's sing. Let's confess sin. Let's partake of communion. Think about ways in which God wants to rearrange our lives by removing us from darkness and placing us into light so we walk as free people. You bring-